Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. My guest today is uh, the great Grab Grabsky, uh, also known as Phil, with all due respect to Wayne Gratz Gretzky, who was known as the great Gretzky, and number 99 for the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, you know, I, I came became aware of you, Phil, uh, through uh, the Balzac Cinema here in Paris, where I can't remember the first one we saw, uh, but in any event, this is maybe four or five years ago. And, and now that I do a little bit of research, I find out that you're an author. Uh, I, Caesar, with all due respect to Edward Gibbons, or Edmund Gibbons, uh, the great commanders uh, from uh, uh, Alexander the Great to Zukov, uh, music, uh, documentaries, which I haven't seen yet on Chopin, Mozart, and, and Beethoven. Uh, and, and so you're a truly a, a Renaissance man. So there's much to talk about. But I, I want to start today by talking about uh, about your uh, your art, artistic movies, your art movies. Uh, we saw Vermeer uh, just, I guess, two weeks ago. Uh, the final uh, program here in Paris is this uh, Saturday. And somebody had the brilliant idea of inviting everybody older than me in the city of Paris. The theater was filled. So someone got got smart and decided that people in uh, retirement communities actually still have an interest in art. Yeah. But what we can't find out is where were you born, Phil? Well, it's funny because you mentioned uh, before we started, you're from Brooklyn. Well, I was born in Far Rockaway. <clears throat> in <New York. laughs> um, my father is uh, was, I should say now, uh, American. My mother's English. <clears throat> um, and... Uh, very interesting parents. But um, when I was one, I and my two elder brothers and my parents came to England. <clears throat> so, but with, uh, with your father? Yeah, we all came. Oh, okay. He, um, excuse me. <clears throat> it's early here. My voice hasn't woken I, up. I can understand. Um, we came, we uh, settled in a city called Brighton mm -hmm. on the south coast of England. Moved around a little bit because of his job in uh, computing. So lived in Manchester, then London. Uh, but as it happens, life is funny. I've ended up in Brighton. So <clears throat> my company and I have been in Brighton for the past 35 years. <clears throat> and I've been making, sorry, the last, yeah, 35 years. Wow. And I've been making documentaries for getting on 40. Amazing. Well, you're a child prodigy. I mean, you wrote, I mean, The Great Commanders, you were 26 years old. You were a child, for crying out loud. Do you know, I love, I absolutely love that writing, doing that series and writing that book. And um, it was a bestseller. And the, and the TV series continues to be very popular on, on Amazon. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, it's funny, I didn't even think about my age. Um, now my daughter is kind of approaching that age, and I think that really was quite young. <clears throat> I would say. Um, it's, uh, I was fortunate, and it's interesting. I, I, I spent a lot of my career making biographies. Um, so when I made a series about the, the history of the Roman Empire, I broke it down into six lives of Julius Caesar and five emperors. Great commanders with six biographies. I did a series about the history of Spain since the death of Franco. And again, I broke it down into four living individuals in different circumstances, but, but who could tell the story of Spain. Um, so I've loved doing that. 
And, you know, obviously Vermeer is another example. Um, it's just something that I, I, I find myself drawn to and that I'm good at. Well, I, I suspect, uh, you know, you were probably a reader. I know when I was uh, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, I haven't been stained by too much formal education. I had one year of one year of college in the wrong major. I was a pre-engineering major. And as my mother said to my father, engineer, schmengineer, the kids are salesmen. What's the matter with you? So grandma, grandma knew I, I wouldn't cross a bridge. There was a foot over the ground that I had anything to do with. But I went to the library and it was a great series that Bennett Surf had created yeah. called Random House Landmark Books. And I read Alexander the Great and the Battle of Britain, yeah. you know, written for 11 year olds, but not written down to them. Uh, so where were you educated? I was educated in London, went to a good school. Um, and, you know, they, they were encouraging me to, to do English at university, but from 13, 14, I wanted to be a photographer. I was fortunate. Oh, that's what I was going to say about being fortunate. But I was fortunate because my sister um, was a, a great reader, a reader. She married a wonderful man. They lived together in Berlin. <clears throat> we used to visit them at Christmas. And they, she's older than me, they introduced me to a world of, not only was Berlin, you know, West Berlin, tremendously exciting at that what time. What years are we talking about? Uh, early 70s. Okay. So, you know, we'd go through Checkpoint Charlie and visit East Berlin. It was it was an amazing place to visit as a kid. But they were very cultured. He played the clarinet. So I'd sometimes hear, you know, the clarinet concerto by Mozart. They took me to the Berlin Philharmonic. I was bored, but I still was exposed to the Berlin Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. um, but books and you know, I remember I used to love every Saturday going to the library and getting out some books. I loved it. And when I started school in the first year, we did classics. And my teacher said, I've not I've not had a 12 year old turn up who's already read the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, and I was reading at 12, 13, I was reading like Zola and Jane Austen. And this is really because of my sister, as well as children's books, loved it. But something clicked for me in my early 20s, um, where I was combined with the ability to work very, very hard. Uh, and that's something that I've had this, this, um, I mean, you, you can be as talented as you like, if you can't work, if you don't have that ability to, to well, put you're, in you're a schwer arbiter, as they would say in Berlin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The one but in doing these biographies, of course, one of the things that comes up time and time again is that you have to look at the, the historical context. What else is happening? The role of the parents, the role of economics at that time and technological development. But if I look at my own biography, I've been fortunate. And one of those ways in which I've been fortunate is that I managed to get myself into into film college out coming out of school. Um, and but while I was there, in Britain, our fourth channel started. Now there are hundreds, maybe thousands. Back then, when I started college, we had three. What was what college was this? Uh, it was called the Polytechnic of Central London in London, obviously. Okay. Uh, 1982, 1983, Channel 4 started in Britain. Now, Channel 4 was set up with the absolute um, determinant that 
there was to be no in-house production. It was all to be farmed out to independent producers. It was to create an independent community. <clears throat> and I was lucky. I managed to write to a commissioning editor there. I don't know. I don't. I made a film while I was at college that sold to one of the other three television stations. So that was good. And then I was asked to make a film uh, by a TV station, but pretty soon I was in conversation with Channel 4 and I just happened to hook up with a fantastic commissioning editor <clears throat> who commissioned me to do a one-off and that went very well. And he kind of said to me afterwards, he said, I'm surprised. I didn't think that would, that would work, but it does. So what do you want to do next? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, he said, have you thought about the campaigns of Napoleon? Completely out of nowhere. But this guy was a great reader and he'd read the campaigns of Napoleon. He said, have a think, see if there's something to be done with the campaigns of Napoleon. Like, All right. Anyway, again, this is where you've got to be sharp. Literally the next day, I got my brother to drive me down to Sandhurst War Academy, Military Academy. I went to see the head of war studies and I said, come on, there's a, there's, a, there's a slight crack in the door here at Channel 4. What can we do? He said, well, we should, anyway, between the three of us, we came up with a six part series looking at the history of command um, through six individual commanders. And that became the great commanders, which as I mentioned earlier. I so the book was written before, to support no, the, the TV series? Yeah, TV tie-in. <clears throat> and uh, we sold 50,000 copies um, not that the accounts would show that, <laughs> but, that's, <laughs> but that's a story of that's Hollywood, you know, bookkeeping. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I absolutely loved the research. I loved whether it was going to Turkey to research Alexander the Great and Greece, of course, or, or, um, it was, uh, the first time that I'd really looked into the life of Julius Caesar, though I did look at his life in more detail again. Um, and you know, we, we, we've, I'm, I'm talking to you right now from Washington, where I had a screening yesterday of Vermeer hmm. at the National Gallery of Art. And that was, I mean, that Vermeer is our 33rd exhibition on screen. Tokyo Stories, I'm doing the screening here tomorrow. We're just releasing that. They're all largely biographies. I mean, there's nothing more interesting than, than us. Sure. Beings. No, absolutely. So uh, I'm just going to go back quickly and, and talk a little about music before we. Uh, yeah. you, you mentioned, you know, the the, uh, the clarinetist as not not Woody Allen from Far Rock Away, but you know, in in the in the for Berlin Philharmonic, uh, Chopin, Mozart, Beethoven. Which was the first, and what drew you to the idea of making by? Uh, I'm I'm guessing that you saw Reichenbach's uh, Amour de la Vie about Rubinstein. So. I ended up making four classical music films. And again, it was a period of filmmaking, which I adored, but that was never the intention. <clears throat> Basically, um, I had been making I, uh, a lot of programs for television, great commanders, Spain in the shadow of the sun, four part series about how Spain had changed since Franco. Um, so right through the 1990s, a lot of history films with Terry Jones, Hidden History of Egypt, Hidden History of Rome, Ancient Inventions with Terry Jones for Discovery Channel. Ancient Warriors was a 26 part series, which 
which still is our biggest seller on Amazon. I mean, it's extraordinary. And this was 26 half hours about who were the Spartans, who were the Macedonians, who were the Romans, who were the samurai, etc. So very, very busy. Um, but working with television isn't always perfect. And one of the things that the BBC, maybe I should say allegedly, though it's not alleged, they do, they did, they used to steal ideas. And I had taken them a, a, a series with Terry Jones about the medieval world, six part series. And they'd said, no, we're not interested. You know, we're moving away from presenters like Terry and we don't want to do the medieval period. And I kept at it and kept at it. It was a complete switch, 180 degree switch. And they said, okay, it's a commission. Leave it with us, we'll come back to you. I went off doing something else. And to cut a long story short, um, I don't know quite why I have my, uh, my thoughts on this, but I suddenly discovered that the commissioning editor that I'd been talking to at the BBC was now making this exact same series with Terry Jones for another production company. Oof. It's a long story, but you can imagine I was kind of irritated by that. But my wife and I, and we worked together, we're a team. We thought, well, do we fight this? And I said, you know what? We've done six hours with Terry. Technology has changed in terms of cameras so fantastically. We're talking now about 2000, 2001. Do you know what? I'm just going to go and make my own film. Filming it myself, mm -hmm. which I had been doing half the time I would film as well as direct. Uh, I'm just going to find a subject that I want to go, just go off on my own. I'm not doing these big shoots, presenters. <clears throat> Terry was the most wonderful man, but it's still it's all first class and, you know, uh, writing a script to them was fantastic, but it was still uh, um, a lot of time spent backwards and forwards. Anyway, I thought I just want to do something on my own. Cutting a long story short, again, I went to Afghanistan. I was, to the best of my knowledge, I was the first filmmaker into Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban. And I made a film about a little boy. It's called Boy, The Boy Who Plays on the Buddhas of Bamiyan. Now, this film did very well. It ultimately became a 20-year project. And um, last year, we were very, very happy to win the BAFTA in the UK for Best Documentary for this film called My Childhood, My Country, 20 Years in Afghanistan. So it became a long-term project. So while I've been doing these art films, I've also been dealing with Afghanistan with an Afghan co-director. Co um, anyway, after that first film in Afghanistan, um, I then was thinking, well, what do I do next? I really enjoyed the fact that I was filming things myself, basically going out on my own with all my kit. I love the freedom of it. And the technology, as I say, was so important because all of a sudden cameras have gone zoom like this. And, but they were really good. And while I was thinking about it, my wife for my birthday took me to an opera house very close to where we live called Corn. And uh, she'd taken me, she knew I'd love Damodea, she knew I liked the music of Mozart. She'd taken me to see an opera called Idomeneo. I'd never heard of Idomeneo, I have to be honest. It's quite a long opera. By the end of that opera, I thought, I've got my next subject. I want to know who Mozart really was. You know, I'd love Damodeus. I saw Amadeus in Paris. <laughs> with my then uh, French girlfriend. And um, 
absolutely adored the film, but I knew it was, I just knew it was Hollywood. I said, I, I always knew that that isn't really how he really is. I then spent the next three years, so again, the, the world of filmmaking has changed. So by this time, you're kind of doing multiple projects. Um, so we were doing art films for television, but also I was making this film about Mozart. It was a three-year project. I interviewed about a hundred people, filmed a lot of music, I think something like 13 operas, for example. Basically piecing together his life and just ask, just trying to find out exactly who he really was. But you're Which, the editor on your films as well, right? No, I don't edit them. Oh, okay. So <clears throat> that's a very important role, which is, mm -hmm. that was, um, those music films were done by somebody who I think a genius. My art films are always, I always work with the same editor who I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, they're, they're very important. Um, by the time I got halfway through the Mozart film, I realized that Wolfgang Mozart was 180 degrees from the portrayal from Amadeus. And again, like we were just talking about, he was somebody who you can't imagine how hard he worked, his passion for music from a young child. This idea that his father dragged him around Europe as a kind of performing monkey is complete nonsense. His father wanted to expose him to different courts where there was different music being played, setting up the possibility of work in the future. He spent a year in Italy, not so that he could perform and generate income, but so that he could learn Italian, which was the language of opera, and so on and so on. I really loved that film, and when we released it, um, again, it was just at the beginning of when, I mean, documentaries were starting to be shown now in cinemas, and starting to do quite well, thanks to Michael Moore. Um, but releasing a documentary about Mozart was quite a thing. Um, in Australia, where it was the first digital, digitally distributed documentary ever, in some cinemas, it played for six months. It's amazing. But I, when I finished it, I wasn't really planning on doing another one. But along the way, Terence, I'd say to people, look, you'll help me. I'm up. I'd say to these great musicians, pianists, singers, you name them, they're probably in the film. I'd say, was Mozart the greatest composer of all time? Because I'm a filmmaker, you know, I know that it helps. Wolfgang Mozart was the greatest filmmaker of all time, uh, musician of all time. What they would say to me was, okay, Mozart was the greatest composer of all time, but there's Beethoven. You can't forget Beethoven. I kept saying it. When I finished Mozart, I thought to myself, okay, I've got to do this again. I've got to, I've got to do Beethoven. Then I did Beethoven. Loved it. I thought I thought Beethoven would be easier because unlike Mozart's officially six hundred and twenty-six works, but eight hundred, eight hundred and fifty. I thought here's here's Beethoven, he's only done hundred and twenty works. It's just as hard. You have to cover every symphony. So on and so forth. Lots of stories in that shoot, but that went well. But then when I finished Beethoven really got into depth in their biography and you realize that both of them talk about the great composer being Haydn. Then I had to make a film about Haydn. <laughs>
And then I was asked, because I was starting to get a reputation for somebody who could film orchestras, I was asked by an orchestra to film a very special concert they were doing in Warsaw to mark the 200th anniversary of Chopin. And in this concert in Krakow and Warsaw, they were going to play all of Chopin's orchestra. That actually only amounts to about two and a half hours. He didn't like very much orchestral music. It does have a two piano projection. And when I went to um, Poland, which for me was the first time I've been to Poland, very moving for me because that's where my that's my paternal line and through my father. That's where the name Grabski comes from. Um, but when I filmed that concert, by the end of that concert, <clears throat> I decided I have to make a film about Chopin. And in doing this for films, of course, I've covered what is really the classical music period. It's a history of classical music, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin. Um, but these were difficult to do. They were, you know, I, I, I would have moved on to Bach, but the money wasn't there. <clears throat> um, so apart from one film that I made with Leif Ove Antones about, specifically about the piano concerti, <clears throat> Um, by Beethoven, that that was it for the music films, but I, I loved making them. So when did the idea come to uh, begin to uh, do art films on, for exhibition on screen? For the cinema? Well, <clears throat> we had become... So, the same commissioning editor that I'd gone to in, whenever it was, um, 19... 89, 1990, no, even earlier than that. But the commissioning editor that ultimately commissioned me to do The Great Commanders was, he was, he was a fantastic commissioning editor. Um, I mean, you'd get a written letter back the next day from if you sent in, a, a, you know, he was, he, if he said no to you, he'd explain why and it, it would make sense. If he said yes to you, it would get done. I mean, and then when you were making the film, he would just be inspirational in making you make a better film. The well, obviously, this is not happening in France. Uh, you're in, in the right place to be getting these yeses and and you know, and, yeah. and you know and good notes. Yeah, I was lucky. Um, he went to the BBC, and actually was uh, who I then made the Roman series again. I Caesar, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Another. I mean that. Was, possibly the hardest work I've ever done. That was three years every single day. <clears throat> and I must say, writing a book is even harder than making the films because so much research has to go into writing a book properly. <clears throat> this particular commissioning editor then went off to another new channel called Channel 5. Channel 5 was very populist from the start. <clears throat> it was all about football, and entertainment and he said to me he said there's nothing at channel five for you <clears throat> uh, he said oh you know we'll talk again when i move on to another channel <clears throat> but one day he rang me up and he said hey do you want to make an eight-part series about the impressionists and i thought he meant comedians <laughs> uh and i said well sure thinking rich little <laughs> yeah exactly um he said, no, he said, I don't mean comedians, I mean artists. When this channel was set up, and he said, what nobody knows is that the government at the time insisted that we do at least 
a half an hour a week of arts. Nobody realizes this. Nobody submits any ideas. He said, I've been, filling, I've been fulfilling this quota with a book show on Sunday afternoon. Uh, but the presenter wants to have an eight week break. So I've got a gap. He said, we've got no money, which is what broadcasters have said day in, day out for my entire career. Well, no, for the last 25 years of my career, I've got no money um, whilst turning over billions. Anyway, he said, we've got no money, but I talked about it with my wife. And this was at a time, see my wife's role here is very important in my opinion, in the history of arts programming in the United Kingdom. Because the BBC was basically, had publicly virtually said, we're not interested in the arts anymore. Nobody else was doing the arts. They were dying on television, which was a travesty. I went back to my wife and said, look, I've been offered this eight part series, Monet, Manet, whoever, but it's a really low budget. And um, she said, look, it'll be, she said, we'll make it work. Let's do it. It'll be, it, it's, it's, it's something good to do. It's, it's important. We'll make it work. I think we'd done a discovery series and discovery were, were very good on budgets. You know, you, you gave them a budget and they paid it. So maybe we had some money in the bank. <clears throat> anyway, we made this series and it was very successful. Went out on a Sunday afternoon, did so well that they decided to put it out at peak time at 6.30 PM up against Coronation Street, up against East Enders. <clears throat> and we were getting four, five, six hundred thousand viewers. So much so that people started talking about this and saying to the BBC, why are Channel 5 doing arts programs and you're not? And it actually kind of forced the BBC into saying, oh, yeah, okay, of course, we'll, we'll do arts as well. Somebody who works at the BBC would probably claim, oh, that's not true. This isn't, that didn't happen. But I can tell you that the boss of BBC Two at the time had said to me, we're not interested in the arts. And, um, and I, 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 I could argue this case face to face with anybody who worked at or works at the BBC, that late 1990s, what we were doing on Channel 5 made a difference to what the BBC did and one or for a moment, Channel 4 started to do the arts too. They basically, they, they do a little bit now. I mean, right now it's very poor again. And because I could see it was becoming poor again, uh, we made, I mean, we ultimately made about 150 art films for this channel. Then they were, but they were bought out by a popular newspaper had no interest in the arts. So then we moved to an arts channel but it was always a struggle. And, um, but for this arts channel, we were doing films about exhibitions. So every major exhibition, well, many major exhibitions coming through London, occasionally Liverpool, Cardiff, um, we would make a half an hour film, sometimes a one hour film for television. And they were very well reviewed, they did okay. Okay, but bear in mind, remember I've had my films about musicians, play in the cinema. And I've seen audiences. I mean, I used to, we used to play for, I used to go to Chicago, for example, and do like four days, three screenings a day, and they'd all set out. And what you're seeing there is that there is an audience, it is an older audience, but there's an audience who are interested in culture, 
who will go out to watch a film. And in fact, of course, a film in the cinema is, is the ideal place to see a film. <clears throat> You've committed to not being distracted by your phone, by making lunch, by having a conversation. It, it, it's needless to say that that is the best place to see a film. And the cinemas are commercial beasts, but if they're getting big audiences, they think, oh, that's, this is interesting. Okay, so there's two elements there. The third element was that I was making a film at the National Theatre about a play called War Horse. And um, while I was making that film, I was aware the National Theatre were doing something for the first time, which was they were about to film a, a play called Fedra with Helen Mirren and, and transmit it live to a network of cinemas around the world. And they were doing that because they'd seen the Met Opera had started doing that. And I thought, that's interesting. All of which led me to decide the next big exhibition that I'm going to do, I'm going to do it for the cinema. So I went to talk to British cinemas and they thought I was insane. They said, why would anyone go to the cinema to see an art show, an art exhibition? No, no, no thanks, that's not a film. And I said, yeah, but it's more than that. The exhibition is a springboard to make a biography. Plus, we're, sh we're gonna be showing people the exhibition which most people can't get to. We're gonna be showing it in high definition because the technology is continuing to improve. You'll see these paintings on the big screen, all the detail. I'll have the curators and the biographers and, and they just weren't sure. <clears throat> But I went to the National Gallery in London, who I knew, and I said, look, this is my, this is 2009. This is my idea. But what's your next big show? <clears throat> and they said, we don't understand your premise. We're not really sure what you're talking about. But our next big show, you're in luck, Phil. You're, our next big show is Leonardo. In 2011, we're doing the biggest Leonardo show ever. So again, lucky. And I said, thank you. I'll take that. The next two years was very, very difficult, and I had to deal with some very unpleasant people along the way. Um, but jumping forwards, the day that show opened, we did a live from the National Gallery. It's called Leonardo Live. I did manage to persuade one cinema chain, our prime, at that time, our kind of predominant art house chain. They put it into 42 cinemas in the United Kingdom. Um, but they said, we'll only do it if it's live on opening night. I said, oh, I said, live's a nightmare. It's expensive. And it also affects what I can do in terms of quality. You know, what the person says in those 45 seconds, that's gone out. I can't, I can't do an hour interview and edit it. I can't, color, I can't color grade the paintings properly. If there's a storm, I mean, anything, anything can happen. And this is where I was dealing with difficult people because I had to... Uh, employ technicians who were used to, to doing live transmissions and I was a bit unlucky with 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 them. But anyway, um, we did this. The Leonardo exhibition, of course, was magnificent. It had the Salvatore Mundi, first time that had ever been seen. In fact, I, I'm the only person ever to have filmed it in an exhibition space apart from at Christie's. <clears throat> um, and in those 42 cinemas, 41 of them literally turned people away. 
I had the same experience yesterday at the National Gallery of Arts where we showed Vermeer. It's, it's quite hard to see people who actually, you know, turned up, but they couldn't get in because it was complete, 500 plus seats, completely sold out, turning people away. So this happened with Leonardo Live. And at that point, cinemas pricked up their ears, international distributors pricked up their ears. Um, so that was the beginning of exhibition on screen. Leonardo Live we showed in 30 countries ultimately. Um, I re-edited it before releasing it internationally so that I could, you know, we had two presenters in Leonardo Live. I cut out some of that. I color graded, color graded the pictures better. And we released the 30 countries. And then we, I immediately realized that the way that this would work was, would be to have us, I had to, to get cinemas on board long term, I had to create a series. I had to say to them, look, I'm not going to be delivering you an occasional film. It's going to be minimum three films a year and up to five. And they will be high quality. You'll have all the marketing support you need. And we're in it for the long term. And every single country, you know, it takes time to persuade them. Um, and, and we deal with a lot of cinemas. In the United States, we deal directly with 150 cinemas. Each cinema needs to be persuaded. All I can say is that once they start, they, they don't drop us. They're on board. We just had a last thing to say. We just had a cinema in Florida. We've been trying to get this. It's, it's like a big city in Florida with a big retirement community. I know because I've got somebody I know who lives there. People are very artistic there. Couldn't persuade the cinema. Well, he's just shown Vermeer and people are queuing around the block. It's like, well, we have been telling you this for the last eight years. Um, but that's that's where we are now. I just want to stop you for a second because we don't we don't have enough time to do justice to what I want to talk to you about. We're going to have to talk on another occasion, Phil, uh, more if you don't mind, you know, more in depth about the specific work. But uh, you know, you, you allude to you know why make the film? Well, I must tell you, uh, my fiance and I, when we go to a museum, she could spend hours just reading the text. You know, I'm I'm a TGV. I see the image, boom, 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 I'm gone. You know. Uh, when I watched, looking at Vermeer, for example, and something that really jumped out, there's a, a, a painting where a woman's uh, arm is, is shown. It's like her, and the, and the narrator points out the difference in, in color of the whiteness of the upper ulna and radius and the, and the tan. Uh, it's astonishing. Uh, number one, if you're at an exhibit here in Paris with the numbers of multitudes of people, you don't have enough time to stop and do that. So I'm not, you may not necessarily replace the museum, but you certainly make the experience before and after that, that much richer. Um, in any event, once you got started, so, and, and, you know, for example, you know, Ken Burns seems like to take 10 years to make a movie. Well, you had to get the, uh, I, you, you knew that Vermeer was coming, but, uh, what is the planning process? How do you get how do you get around to getting all of that work done and getting it out? You know, it just closed on Sunday, so you have, you have about two and a half minutes to answer. Yeah, that no, question. I'm sorry, I've, <laughs> I've, I've, given, I've given you a lot of biography. We no, no, it's wonderful. Yeah. No, no, we, we'll do a separate thing just okay. on on a series of films. I, okay. Don't stop now. I'll keep it short. Vermeer, during the period of exhibition on screen, if there's one, <clears throat> and we made two Vermeer films along the way, one specifically about Girl with a Pearl Earring one about an exhibition called Vermeer and Music. 
But if there's one exhibition that people have asked me, did you film? It's the 1995 Vermeer. There's something about Vermeer. And when I heard, I mean, this, this Vermeer show in the Rijksmuseum has been under, they've been working on it for six, seven years. I didn't hear about it until maybe three years ago. And I immediately went to them because I knew I had to be, you know, I had to be, because it's exclusive, you know, I had to be the filmmaker that was allowed in to film this exhibition because I, I had no idea it was going to do this well. It was impossible. I mean, we're just about to overtake supersize me you know, in the UK in terms of box office. I mean, it's nuts. This is a film about a painter. It's by far the most successful film about a documentary about a painter ever released in the UK. And it's doing well elsewhere. Um, there's something about Vermeer, and we dis discussed this with an audience yesterday. Primarily, that's because he's such an extraordinary painter. It's also because 28 of his 37 extant paintings were there. It's because the tickets sold out. You couldn't get a ticket for love nor money. Um, we talked to the Rijksmuseum. We got their permission to film it. And of course, now, I mean, two days ago, the exhibition finished. The only way you're going to see it now is with the film. So they're, they're very happy to. Uh, Phil, the garrulous Grabsky, I, I must stop you now because I'm going to run Bobby, out of film, as, as they say. But that being said, I'm going to send you an email. Send me some information so I can be in touch with you and Megan when it's appropriate. Uh, you probably have no time to talk after now, but send me a place where I can, uh, a number where I can find you when you're back in Brighton. And let's have a long conversation. And then let's uh, schedule some time to talk about uh, more specifically about the film. So uh, once again, you know, Mazel Tov, as we say in, in Brooklyn, uh, fabulous work. And, uh, okay. you know, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure. It's been a treat. Uh, me too. Thank you very much. Talk to Thank you again. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Be well. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. And for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com. And subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terence Kalenter, your American friend in Paris.